Good evening, everybody. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. I don't want to frighten anybody, but tonight we're going to go through three chapters of Ecclesiastes. And if you think, oh, heavens, that's too much to go through. I, look, I, I, I think you should know that there are some advantages to going through some passages of Scripture at a, at a more rapid pace. Um, and, and in Ecclesiastes, it's really a book that deals with big ideas that are sort of examined from a lot of different angles. And so I, I think we don't want to lose ourselves in the minutia of the details, even though there would be some profit in doing a greatly in-depth study of Ecclesiastes. Uh, there's also profit in sort of making your way and getting more of a bird's eye view. In addition, honestly, if we spent too many weeks in Ecclesiastes, we'd all be really depressed, right? <laughs> so it's better to make our way through a little bit more quickly. So tonight we're going to do chapters 4, 5, and 6. And Father... We pray for your blessing upon our time in the word this evening. We worship you, Lord Jesus. You can move mountains. You, you rose from the dead. And we're so grateful that we serve a living, loving Lord Jesus who's enthroned in the heavens and who speaks to us, Lord, uh, through every part of your word. We believe it when it says, Lord, that all scripture is inspired by God. And we know, Lord, we know because your spirit speaks to us this book of Ecclesiastes. So do it this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning now at verse 1. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Again, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who characterizes himself as the preacher in this book, he's examining life from a particular premise. Sort of the code word for that premise throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is this phrase found in the very first line of verse 1, chapter 4, under the sun. And under the sun basically has the idea of in this world as we know it without taking into account eternity. It doesn't mean without God, but it means without eternity and without the need to answer to God in the world beyond. It means just under this sun, under this atmosphere, as we know it right here, right now. And so now he's concerning himself with the meaninglessness of life if it's to be considered apart from eternity. And this is part of his great contention right here. He looks at it in verse 1. Then he says, look at all this. Look at the tears of the oppressed. At the end of chapter 3, he flirted with hope. But now he's once again turned to the despair at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where he considered the problem of injustice. And so now, continuing along the same lines, he considers all the oppression that's done under the sun. And in a very poetically powerful phrase, he talks about the tears of the oppressed who have no comforter. Friends, when you think about it, there's an awful lot of oppression in this world, isn't there? And the Bible's concerned with it, is it not? You go through the pages of the Old Testament, you find in the law of Moses and you find in the pronouncements of the prophets in the Old Testament, they're concerned with all kinds of oppression. They're concerned with the way that the rich can oppress the poor, with the powerful can oppress the weak, with the ungodly can oppress the godly, with the way that the wicked can oppress the just. They're, they're, 
and struck with a way that sometimes people in power and in positions of justice can deal out injustice instead of what they're supposed to do. And so as he considered the tears of the oppressed and that they have no comforter, that Solomon thought of this painful and tear-filled world that the lives of oppressed people live. And, and in an under-the-sun world, a, a world where this life is all there is, and, and men and women give no account for their lives in the world to come, then the tears of the oppressed are especially bitter, and there is no one to give them comfort. If you think about it, if this life is all there is, if God does not have a way of setting things correct in justice and judgment in a world to come, then there's a lot of people who get away. I'll say it. I mean it both as a phrase, but I also mean it literally. They get away with murder. Do they not? Are there not a lot of people who get away with horrible oppression against other people? Because they never have to answer for it in this life. They laugh at their victims. They, they, they enjoy the pain, or at least they seem to. They inflict upon other people, or at best, they're blind to it. And if this life is all there is, if there is no eternity, if all of life can be defined under that premise of under the sun, then no wonder Solomon is concerned about this. There's nobody to, to comfort the person who has the tears of the oppressed. And he's so stricken by this. Look at this in verse 2. He says, Therefore I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who were still alive. Yes, better, or excuse me, yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. You see what he's saying there? He's saying because of oppression and the sadness that it brings into the world, man is better off dead. The thought of the oppressors and their victims was so painful to the writer of Ecclesiastes that the fact that they found no justice in this world and that they would find no justice in eternity because it doesn't fit under his premise, it was so bitter to the preacher that he thought of the dead as being fortunate. You see, in an under-the-sun world, the dead don't have to think of things like that, right? In an under-the-sun world, death is nothing but a release. Now, friends, I have to warn you here that Solomon's basic premise of an under-the-sun world is not true. It is not accurate. This life is not all there is. And there are some people who, in a tragic fit of, of the tears of oppression or, or the despair of the moment or an extended season of the despair and, and comfortlessness in their life, they feel driven perhaps to take their own life. And they think that they're going to pass to something better or pass to nothing. Friends, that's under the sun thinking, but it's not real thinking. You see, Solomon could only praise the dead this way because at his time, he had no certain knowledge of the world to come. And he wrote most of Ecclesiastes with this under the sun premise. But, but if he knew and accepted what happened to the righteous dead, he would never say such a thing. He would never say that people are better off dead. Friends, I want you to think about it. In light of eternity, which is not the light under which Solomon is considering things, but in the light of eternity, we would say this, that for the godly, for, for, for those who are the purchased people of God in Jesus Christ, for the godly, this world is the worst you will ever have it. But for the ungodly, for those who reject God and his way of salvation, think about it. This world, even with all of its impression and terrors, this world is the best they will ever have it. And Solomon 
wasn't allowing himself to think this way. Oh, I think he believed it in his heart of hearts. But, but in the writing of Ecclesiastes, he says, no, I'm going to put all of that on the shelf. And I'm going to consider life in an under the sun kind of premise. One of the commentators I like to read from time to time is this old Puritan fellow, John Trapp. And he gave a very interesting illustration of this idea. He said this. I'll read it and then I'll explain it. He said, men, like silly fishes, see one another caught and jerked out of the pond of life, but they cannot see. Alas, the fire and the pan into which they are cast and they die in their sins. You just think of a little fish swimming around, right? And all of a sudden, your little friend fish gets jerked out of the water, right? What happens to him? You don't know. You just don't know. You just know he's gone. What you don't know is that he's now roasting in a pan, right? Now, you may feel comforted that you don't know that. But friends, just because it didn't happen before your eyes doesn't mean that it didn't happen. So it's a very vivid illustration that John Trapp gives. And it's the kind of thinking that Solomon will not allow himself to think about under this premise. One other thing before we leave it. In verse 3, he used a very, excuse me, verse 2, he used a very interesting phrase. I praise the dead who were already dead. I like that. It's an interesting phrase because it implies that there are the dead who are not yet dead. There are the living dead, are there not? And they walk this earth and they have biological life, but their spirit and their soul seem dead. I wonder if I'm not speaking to somebody like that right here tonight. You're the living dead. Oh, you walk and you can fog up a mirror, but there's no spiritual life in you. I tell you, you don't have to leave this room tonight like that. Jesus Christ can give you life. And if you come to him, he will not reject you. You don't have to be one of those uh, who are dead but yet alive. Going on now, verse 3, he says, Better than both is he who never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Solomon took the idea of praising the dead even further. You see, to where he now praised he who has never existed. The dead who were once alive and had to see the evil work that was done under the sun. You see, the preacher's great despair over the injustice and the oppression in an under-the-sun premise shows the moral necessity of an afterlife and a coming judgment. Jesus told us this, that those who oppress and misuse their power will ultimately endure punishment, not their victims. You remember what Jesus said? He said it in a very powerful way in Matthew chapter 18. He said, woe to those who offend one of these little ones. It would be better for them if a millstone was put around their neck and they were cast into the sea. Now think about that. Think about having a great big millstone tied around your neck, a huge boulder, so to speak. And then it's tied to your neck and you're thrown out into the middle of the channel. That would be a tough way to go, would it not be? Jesus said it would be better for that person than it would be for those who offend one of his little ones, who misuse them, who oppress them. My friends, notice that. It's not the oppressors who will enjoy and laugh it up in that day. No, it's the oppressed who will be comforted, and those oppressors, they will be judged in the world to come. Going on now, verse 4. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. 
The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. I like this is very interesting in verse 4. For all toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. The preacher thought of those who gain success through toil and skillful work. Well, there you are. You're a hardworking man. You're a hardworking woman. And through your toil, through your ingenuity, through your skillful work, you, you work really hard. And what does it gain you? The preacher tells you in verse 4, it gains you the envy of your neighbors. They hate you now because you're a big success. <laughs> Congratulations. You are successful enough to where everybody hates you. You could just imagine the guy that Solomon's thinking about, right? He works so hard. He works smart. He puts it all in. And then what does he get at the end of it all? Great. Thank you very much. Now everybody hates me. They're all jealous of me. And you just think, no wonder he says it's vanity and grasping for the wind. I thought that I'd find meaning for my life through my hard work, through my skillful work. And it gained me a lot. I can't deny it. But, you know, it's, not, it's meaningless because now just everybody hates me. And then he says the reaction here, verse 5, there's the fool. What does the fool do? He's lazy. He folds his hand and he consumes his own flesh. And here he answered the tendency for those who are jealousy of the success of others to be lazy. And like fools, they fold their hands and they do nothing. And so they waste away. It wasn't the success of their neighbors that made them waste away. No, the foolish, lazy man, he consumes his own flesh. But then he comes to a conclusion right here in verse 6 that it's better a handful with quietness, a handful with contentment, than both hands full together with toil and grasping for wind. It's better to have this much with contentment than to have this much, both hands full, and it's all vanity and grasping after the wind. See, here, the preacher reflects on the value of contentment. That's one thing that money cannot buy, is it? You can have a lot of money but have no contentment. You can be making more and more money. You can have all the success that the world may show you, but not have contentment. No, contentment is something else. And that value of contentment, that is to be better than constantly be grasping for more on top of more. I find it interesting, just in those three verses, Solomon weaves together some fascinating themes. He talks about how hard work and success are good, and they're not to be envied, right? The, the, the envy of the successful man, that's not a good thing. It's a normal thing, but it's not a good thing. And then he talks about how laziness is wrong and it's destructive. And finally, he says, yet even the one with full hands, you must learn contentment. I would imagine that's probably the greatest lesson that some very successful, very driven people need to learn. They need to learn how to find contentment. And God can give them that gift. Look at it here, verse 7 now. He says, then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There's one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother. There's no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asked, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Solomon thought of a man alone. He has no family, no close friends, and he works really hard, and he's really successful. But then what does he get? He gets more and more, but there's nobody to share it with. There's nobody to pass it on to. Congratulations. You're, you're the richest, lonely man in the world. How tragic, isn't it? And, and so he says right there, he never asks for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good. The preacher thought that this unexamined life of hard work and success without family, without friends to share it all in, it's vanity and it's a grave misfortune. You know, if anything, the deep and life-touching 
philosophy of the book of Ecclesiastes should do anything for any successful man or any successful woman. It should just make you slam the brakes on your life just for a moment and say, what am I doing this for? Is it really just just to pile more upon more? Am I doing it detached from relationship? Am I finding meaning in this in eternal context? Maybe, maybe it's all coming back just to the place where you're piling meaninglessness upon meaninglessness. You see, the preacher was entirely correct from an under-the-sun perspective. Uh, Under that premise, there's no such thing as as an eternal accomplishment. And one does not even have the potential satisfaction of passing your accomplishments on to another. But now, starting in verse 9, he's going to think about how without a friend. He thought about the the man who has no friends, nobody, uh, family to pass things on to in verses 7 and 8. But look now at verse 9 where he says very tenderly, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Beautiful how he puts it there in verse 9, isn't it? Two are better than one. You see, in the previous section, Solomon thought how even in an under-the-sun world, living alone made life worse. So he continues to develop the same idea, saying that two are better than one. And he'll begin to state the reasons why this is true. Why? Well, first of all, verse 9, because they have a good reward for their labor. In a good partnership, two people can accomplish more than the two ones individually. The the sum will be greater than the parts. Secondly, he says in verse 10, if they fall, one will lift up his companion. When two work and live together, they can help each other in difficult times. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. The preacher understood that everybody needs help. And it's a blessing both to give help and to receive help. In verse 11, he gives a third reason. He says, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? When two people live together and work together, they bring comfort to the lives of each other. And then finally, in verse 12, the one may be overpowered by another. Two can withstand him. When two people work together and live together, they can bring security and safety to the lives of each other. To to use a phrase, they can watch the back of one another. You know, these four verses, excuse me, these four verses show us the great value of human relationships, of the fact that two are better than one. Living and working together is a great advantage to living and working alone. And it adds these four things to life. These are the four things. I'll list them again. They add productivity, right? They have a good reward for their labor. Number two, they bring help in times of need. If one falls, then he can lift up his companion. Number three, they bring comfort in life. They'll keep warm. And number four, safety and security. Two, with can stand an enemy. Do you like how he puts it there at the end of verse 12? He puts a sort of an interesting statement. He says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The preacher gives a fascinating final line to this section, dealing with the goodness of companionship. We, we might have thought that he would uh, praise the strength of a twofold cord. But instead he puts in there the idea of a threefold cord that is not quickly broken. 
And it's commonly understood that the third cord is God himself and that a relationship intertwined with God as the third and strongest cord in the braid, that is a threefold cord that is not quickly broken. Now, friends, I I would apply this on two levels. On one level, I would apply it to a marriage relationship. I mean, this is often for most people the closest partnership that they have in life. And this is the blessing. I can say that it's true in my life. When I read this section here in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one in the following description. There's one person I think of that's true in my life, and that's with my wife. I mean, she's my companion. She's the one who brings strength and comfort and protection and goodness into my life. That's just a wonderful thing that God has given her, and I hope that I give it to her under God. But listen, I don't want to say it's only relevant to the marriage relationship. Because I think that would be selling it very short here. You you see, I I don't think that the point of this in Ecclesiastes is to say, get married. Because listen, there's some people that for some reason that that just doesn't work. Or they have, or they they, they were in the past, but they're not now. Or it's just just out of their reach for whatever reason. Listen, the point of this isn't get married. The point is have human relationships. Have friendships. Friends, it is. It's a dangerous thing for you to isolate yourself from other people. And for some of us, it's very easy to do. Matter of fact, for some of us, it's very easy to isolate yourself within your marriage relationship or within other friends that you have. But you see how Solomon is giving us real wisdom here. Even in an under-the-sun world, we need companionship. And if you're blessed enough to be married, well, that that, that primary companion should be your wife. Not your only, but primary companion should be your wife. Not the only friend you have in your life, but certainly primary. Listen, if you're not married, oh, I pray that God gives you such good friends. I pray that God would bring companions into your life that would fulfill this for you, that you would really be able to say, two are better than one. I don't live my life in isolation to other people. This is a tremendous blessing that God has given to man. Now, one other thing I want to say before I leave this. Oftentimes, this is quoted by pastors and such in the marriage relationship and saying how the marriage relationship should have God right in the midst of it, intertwined and being that third cord and the threefold cord. And that's good. But one other thought I just want you to consider. It may very well be in context that Ecclesiastes here has in mind that the third cord in the three-fourth cord is not, cor- is not God, but it's children. That's what binds together a family. And so, but I, I think the problem with that is there's nothing here to indicate that the writer to Ecclesiastes had his view only in mind of the marriage relationship. I don't think so. I, I think it goes beyond that to the friendships and the companionships and the fellowship that God would give us one with another. And going on now, verse 13. It says, Better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walked under the sun, and they were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely also this is vanity and grasping for the wind. This is an interesting section where he begins here. He begins his section, verse 13, with a proverb, observing that it's better to be poor and wise and young rather than to be old, foolish, and to have great wealth and status. 
But now in verse 14, he illustrates it with a little picture. And the picture is this, of a second young man who rises out of misfortune and obscurity to achieve great wealth and fame and status. And it says right there that there was no end to all the people over whom he was made king. So think of that. A young man who just rises up out of obscurity to be somebody great in this world. Well, he's famous and he's an influence and people follow him. and He's like a king. There he is. That's the guy that Solomon's illustrating. Yet verse 16, something terrible happens to this guy. There comes the day, yet those who come after him will not rejoice in him. You see, Solomon thought of this young man who achieved much and became famous. He understood that the fame would be short-lived. Even if it lasted his entire lifetime, which would be very remarkable, it would not live on much beyond his own life. You see, with with his under-the-sun premise, this thought brought the familiar conclusion to the preacher, surely also this is vanity and grasping for the wind. Look at this man. He achieved fame and success and notoriety, and everybody loved him, but it passed so quickly. It hardly survived a whisper. It was vanity and grasping for the wind. I like what Derek Kidner said about that man. He said, he has reached the pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. It is yet another of our human anticlimaxes and ultimately empty achievements. That's what fame did for the man at the end of chapter 4. Now chapter 5, again considering this context of under the sun, it doesn't exclude God. He's going to consider God and how to come before God. He's going to give us some good advice. It doesn't really touch on the idea of eternity, but it's good advice in the here and now. Verse 1, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Don't you love that in verse 1? Walk prudently when you go into the house of God. Again, he brings good advice that doesn't contradict his under-the-sun premise. Even apart from eternity, it's wise to honor God and watch your step When you go into the house of God, it would be wise just for this life alone. Now, the the preacher's going to explain more of what he means in the coming lines. But generally, we can say this, to walk prudently or to watch your step when you go into the house of God, it means to think about the consequences when we come and meet God. I like what Alexander McLaren said about this. He said, fruitful and acceptable worship begins before it begins. You come in thinking, I'm going to meet with God. I want to prepare my heart, prepare my mind, prepare my soul for that. He says the alternative to that in verse 1 is that draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools is the hasty speech mentioned in the next few lines. And Solomon counsels us to come into the house of God to hear more than to speak without thinking. Now, when he says to hear there in verse 1, hear in Hebrew as well as sometimes in English, it has the idea of not only to listen but to obey. Come to the house of God to obey, not just to hear the words or not just to speak. Going on now, verse 2, he says, Do not be rash with your mouth. 
For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Solomon rightly described the human tendency to think, excuse me, to speak without thinking before God and others. And even with an under the sun premise, it's foolish to speak too much and to hear too little in God's presence. Let's face it. When we come into the house of God, very often our minds are full of our own business rather than with the worship of God. And when we talk too much, we can talk like fools, right? So often we do this. We do it in the prayer meeting. We do it with we gather the people. We, we can just find ourselves blabbing on and on instead of listening. Sometimes we do it in prayer. Is it not terrible sometimes? I, I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer meeting like this. I certainly have. Where people just seem to want to make speeches when they pray. I, the great Dr. J. Edwin Orr used to advise brief earnest prayers, especially in prayer meetings. And he said that when somebody prays in a meeting, for the first three minutes, everybody prays with him. For the second three minutes, everybody prays for him. (laughs) And if he continues on for a third three minutes, then everybody starts praying against him. Well, it's just like that. It's just after a while, it's after a while, I just I've been so tempted to say I just I got to do it sometime. I've been so tempted to say in some prayer meetings, open your eyes, man, you're preaching. Because that's what some people do in prayer, right? They're, they're instructing God all about who he is and what he's done. And Look, just pray. Just pray. Let your words be few. Make them heartfelt. Make them earnest. But don't be like the, uh, the, the prophets of Baal, right? The prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Oh, they prayed with tremendous energy. And they prayed all morning long. But their prayer availed nothing. But then Elijah got up and he prayed a very simple prayer, a very brief prayer. But God answered with fire from heaven. And so we shouldn't think that we're heard for our long words. No, we're heard for the earnestness of our heart. Verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. Well, this is another heavy section. Not only should we approach the house of God and meetings with other believers with an appropriate reverence, but we should also be careful about the promises, the vows we make to God. See, even with an under-the-sun premise, it's both honorable and wise to honor God by keeping one's word to Him. It would be better for you have never to made the vow or the promise to God than for you to make it lightly and make a vow and then just blow it off. You know, a commonly overlooked and unappreciated sin among God's people is the sin of broken vows. Where we promise God something, And we fail to live up to it. Listen, if you really want to honor God, number one, don't be quick to make vows to him. Number two, be serious about fulfilling whatever vows you have made. I mean, think about it right now. And I pray that as you think, perhaps the Holy Spirit will call your mind to remembrance of a vow you made to God, but you never really have treated it seriously. Now, listen, if it was an unwise vow, 
If it was a vow you should have never made, then you should regard your broken vow as something to be repented of. Confess it as sin and repent of it. If it was a foolish vow, then listen, it was sin for you to make it. Confess your sin and repent of it. Listen, when you do make a vow to God, you should take it very seriously. As he says in verse 6, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin or say that it was an error. The preacher rightly observed that it was important for God's people to regard their failure to keep vows as a serious matter. And that great effort should be put into keeping vows and not regarding the failure to keep a vow as just an error. Whoops. No, you've got to treat it more serious. You made a vow before God. You promised him something. And so either you should fulfill it or you should repent of it. But don't just blow it off and act like it means nothing. Instead, at the end of verse 7, fear God. You see, Solomon counseled reverence and honor towards God, but in his under-the-sun premise, the value for this is found in the here and now, not in eternity. Going on now, verse 8. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. You see, the preacher here just speaks realistically of life under the sun. There's much oppression. There's much perversion of justice. And it should surprise no one. And as he indicates in verse 8, it often comes from bureaucracies. Right? High official watches over high official and higher officials over them. He's thinking about the layers of bureaucracy and how often that brings injustice and oppression to other people. But then in verse 9, he sort of has an ironic thought. That even the prophet of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. Even with a complex and possibly corrupt bureaucracy, everyone depends on what comes from the farmer's field. Even the king. The preacher seemed to delight in that little irony of life. And so he's going on now, verse 10, speaking about the dissatisfaction in the accumulation of wealth. He says this, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Oh, very, very telling words here. Verse 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. Of all people, Solomon knew that the gathering of riches did not satisfy. He knew that this also is vanity. I found that Derek Kidner had a very telling analysis of this. Listen carefully to this line. He said this. If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness that it leaves. Man with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. And Solomon understood this. Matter of fact, he understood what is true there in verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have their owners? Well, what does he mean there? He means this. Solomon knew that when, one net, when one's net worth increased, so did one's expenses and the expectation of others. What does it mean? Well, great. Congratulations, Mr. Successful Man, Miss Successful Woman. You, you've, you know, you've been good in this world. You've made your way in it. You, you, you've accumulated some wealth. And now what? 
Now, everybody wants something from you, don't they? That's what Solomon's talking about. It says, what, what profit have the owners? They increase who eat them. Again, John Trapp has something very, he says, servants, friends, flatterers, treachermen, pensioners, and other hangbys that will flock to a rich man as crows do to a dead carcass, not to defend it, but to devour it. Yeah. Isn't that true? And you think, you say, I worked so hard. I accumulated so much. I was so smart in saving. I got it. I got this. And then now what? Now everybody's got their hand out. You just think, what's vanity? What good is it? So considering this, look at what Solomon says in verse 12. I think this is all funny, actually. Solomon says, oh, the sleep of the laboring man is sweet. And then later, the abundance of the rich man will not permit him to sleep. Solomon indulged in envy of the laboring man who has so much less to worry about. He says, listen, the rich man has greater worries and less sleep. Again, okay, I can understand exactly what you're saying, Solomon. I can see how the burden of all your wealth, of all your assets, it really weighs on you. And you find yourself lying awake at night. Okay, I understand that, Solomon. But Solomon, I don't think you're getting a lot of sympathy from the poor man, right? The, the poor man saying, great, I hope you don't sleep good, Solomon. You know, the, the poor man saying, I, I, you know, I, I got it tough on my own. But Solomon's saying he's envying there. I'm just supposing that Solomon, Solomon found little sympathy from the laboring man that he prays there in verse 12. But listen, look at the uncertainty of wealth. Verse 13. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. This also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. What profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. You see, Solomon observed that wealth does not bless the life of every wealthy person. I'll say it again. Solomon knew that wealth does not bless the life of every wealthy person. There are a lot of people who would be much happier if they had much less. So much fewer anxieties. So much less uncertainty. He talks about when these uncertainties. Look at verse 14. He says, but those riches perish through misfortune. And this shows the utter foolishness of holding on to wealth in an ungenerous way. Wealth can disappear suddenly through misfortune. Isn't that true? Hey, come in. You had it really figured out, right? You had your investments in that sure thing. How's that sure thing working out for you, right? Maybe it's taken a big dump. Maybe it's gone down like crazy. Yeah, who knows? Anything could eat up your wealth. It could be tragedy. It could be illness. It could be bad investments. It could be the completely unexpected things. So many things can take it away. And Solomon knew that despite... The, the, the burial wishes and the customs of the pharaohs, you can't take your wealth with you after death. Matter of fact, he says that in verse 15, just exactly as he came, so shall he go. He understood what Job understood, right? Naked you came into this world and naked you're going to leave this world. Ultimately, it means nothing under the sun. 
Man comes with nothing into this world and he leaves with nothing in the same way. Now, I have to say that the New Testament gives us a more hopeful picture. You see, the New Testament obviously takes us beyond the preacher's under the sun premise. And, and it tells us this. The New Testament tells us a remarkable thing that you can lay up treasure in heaven. You can't take your wealth with you when you die, but you know what you can do? You can send it on ahead by generous giving to God's work. Lay up treasure in heaven. It's a much more optimistic standpoint than the preacher here. But then he says, verse 17, all his days he also eats in darkness and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. With a sympathetic touch, Solomon tells us the loneliness, the sorrow, and the anger there is even for those who have great wealth. You can't help but think that Solomon is looking into his own soul when he says this. But Solomon, he wasn't always down in the dumps. Watch what he does in verse 18. Verse 18, he says, let's make the best of a bad situation. He's not leaving an under-the-sun premise, but he's going to try to do the best with it he can. Verse 18, here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and has given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. You see, we sense here that Solomon's just trying to make the best of a bad situation. So what does he say? He says, okay, Mr. Wealthy Man, under the sun, here's how you avoid despair. Number one, enjoy what you have as a gift from God. Number two, Try not to think about it. Verse 20, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. This was Solomon's counsel to the wealthy man who finds no ultimate meaning under the sun. Simply try not to think about it and keep yourself busy. Well, it just doesn't work. And he doesn't work, the way it doesn't work, he's going to explain even more in verses 1 and 2. Chapter 6 now. He says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself or of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and an evil affliction. Again, he's saying, It's not fair. Here's a man who works really hard to amass things, and he does well with it. And then what? It's all taken away. Somebody else gets the benefit of it. You know, it got stolen in a lawsuit. Uh, somebody ripped me off in the markets. Uh, everything collapsed around me. Someone looks in, there's just something in him and in us, and we look at this, no, it's not right. It's not fair. This is vanity and an evil affliction. But then verse 3, he's going to get even more despairing. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness and his name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun nor own, known anything, but this has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness." Do not all go to one place. 
You see, the idea here is that Solomon took the things that men dreamed of in his culture. In those days, at that time, you know, the, what, what men dreamed of was having a big family. Oh, look, he's got a hundred descendants. Man, that's a blessed man. They dreamed of having a long life. So here's a man. He's wealthy. Hundreds of descendants. He lives 2,000 years. And what does Solomon say? Verse 3, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. It's a bitter statement. You know what I find interesting about it? Would not you expect such a bitter statement to be in the mouth of a man who suffered greatly? Who made a similar statement? Job did in Job chapter 3. Right? You think, well, I can understand it from Job. Look at Job's affliction. Look at the torturous things that he lived with. I can understand why Job would say, it's better that I was never been born. A, a, a stillborn child is better off than I am. I can understand how Job would say, but Solomon? Why would Solomon say this? But you see, Solomon, even with all his blessings and advantages, felt and knew the same despair of life that Job knew. Life was so meaningless that he felt it would be better if he had never been born. Listen, the meaninglessness of life can be a painful affliction to bear. And when you confront it the way that the writer of Ecclesiastes did, it's a Job-like trial. And that's why he could say along with Job, it would be better if I was never born. As he says in verse 5, Though it has not seen the sun nor own anything, this has had more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. In Solomon's mind, the stillborn child, as tragic as it is, it's better off than the man who knows the crushing disappointment of the realization of the meaninglessness of life, even if he lives a thousand years twice. But there's a telling phrase there at the end of verse 6. We'll come back to it at the very end of the chapter where he says, Do not all go to one place. And is under the sun perspective, Solomon said so. But let's continue on now to verse 7. He says, All of the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what is more than the wise man, than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon compares a wise man and a fool. He goes, listen, everybody knows it's better to be wise than it is to be foolish. But you know what? That foolish man gets hungry and needs to eat. And so does the wise man. The wise man's wisdom doesn't fill his stomach. It means he's just like everybody else. How much difference is there really in the things that we separate ourselves with? Oh, and then the futility in verse 10 of knowing that nothing can make it better. He says this. Whatever one is, he has been named already. For it is known that he is man. And he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he, since there are many things that increase vanity. How is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell, what a, who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Very interesting. In verse 10, first he has a fatalistic view of God's sovereignty. Whatever one is, it's been named already. 
The idea is that God is completely in control. And whatever one is, it's because the all-powerful God has named it already. And you can't contend with him who's mightier than he. You see, Solomon's great frustration was rooted in the understanding that man is man, God is God, and man can never successfully contend with him who is mightier than he. Go ahead. Try to contend with God. Try to better him. Try to outthink him. Try to outsmart him. Try to show God where he's wrong. Go ahead. Give it your best shot. It's never going to work. Listen, this was frustrating to Solomon. He felt trapped by this meaningless system under the sun in his premise. But he felt like there was nothing he could do to escape it. So he says there very plainly in verse 11, Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? The preacher felt that life was a game that could not be won since there were many things that increased vanity that ultimately man would become no better. Matter of fact, how do we even know what's good for us in life? Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man in life? You know, we often think we know what's good for us, don't we? But do you really? Do you really know what's good for you? Do I really know for myself? What's better, wealth or poverty? While raising, wealth is better. Oh, really? Maybe wealth would ruin my heart and take me far from God. Then what's better for me, wealth or poverty? What's better, uh, health or sickness? Oh, health is better. Oh, really? Maybe that sickness would draw me to God in a way that I never knew before. What's better, uh, fame or obscurity? Oh, fame's better. Oh, is it really? Maybe that fame will lead me away from God and maybe obscurity is just the thing I need before God. You see, we think we know, don't we? But do we really know? Many who have what is commonly thought of as good in this world are not the better for it. And so he ends on this very depressing point, verse 12. All the days of his life, of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Solomon looked to life and it seemed to be vain and a shadow. And he looked to death and it seemed to be only darkness and obscurity. And to this point, there's little relief from the tragedy of the meaninglessness of life and death under the sun. This chapter ends on a very depressing point. But I'm not going to end on a depressing point. Because I know something that Solomon didn't know. I know what the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. That life and immortality came to light through the gospel. That Jesus Christ gave us a knowledge of the world to come that Solomon never had. And we know, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to feel out in the darkness to know what happens to a man after he dies. We don't have to say what Solomon said, who can tell a man what will happen to him after the sun? I can tell a man. I can tell you, I can tell myself that there is an eternal God that we will stand for before and give account for our life. And he will want to know if we have put our trust in his Savior, Jesus Christ. He will want to know how we have lived our life. And we will give an account before him. And there will be blessing and eternal comfort for those who put their trust in him. And there will be a very terrible future 
for those who reject him. This is what the Bible tells us. You see, the Bible tells us that the understanding of immortality was at best cloudy in the Old Testament, but it's much clearer in the New Testament. You see, we know that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he spoke about heaven and hell. And so we rely on the New Testament for our understanding of the afterlife and not the old. Friend, your life does matter. You may feel at times just exactly like the preacher felt. And that's why this book is in the Bible, to sympathize with your feelings of meaninglessness in life, but to persuade you that your life does have meaning in light of eternity. There is an eternal God who reigns in heaven. And what you do right now will not be forgotten by him. God will not forget who you are and what you do for him. Now, that statement right there either gives you great comfort or causes you great fear. Some of you are hoping God will forget, right? God, could you just forget my whole last year? Others of you, you're hoping God will remember. Friends, God will not forget. And it matters not just for now, but for eternity. This is the missing piece that the preacher up to this point in Ecclesiastes did not know. But before we finish the book, we'll find that thought fully developed in him. Father, this is my prayer for all of us. That we would never be left with the despair of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. But no, rather, Lord, that we would grasp on to his, Lord, to our great hope. Even if he only found it at the very end of the book, we can know it right here, right now, tonight. So we lift our eyes towards Jesus. We lift our eyes to a greater preacher, Jesus Christ, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We receive it from you now, Lord, gratefully as a gift that you give unto us. In Jesus' name, amen.